Well, if you've been here uh, for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been on this journey. We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount for about three, four months before uh, the summer break. And then as I came back, uh, we began talking about what it means for us to be a city within a city, particularly as related to us being a multi-ethnic, multiracial, multicultural community. And um, it's not been difficult to find illustrations because it's like every week, it's like gift that keeps on giving. This week, as many of you know, uh, or was it past week, um, and some of y'all will have to help me out, uh, we have a new Miss America that was crowned. Um, her name, I'm going to butcher it, so I need some of you guys. <laughs> Somebody please, who know that I pronounce this right, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Nina? Nina, that's her name, Nina. Okay, Nina. We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Because <laughs> I hate when people butcher my last name. Um, no, her last name is Nina Davaluri. Davaluri? Indian folks in our church. Am I butchering it? Just call me out. Is it? Okay, anyway. She's Miss New York. Anyway, so there, there, this is her picture. There she is. There she is. Nice, attractive young lady. Um, but then, of course, by the way, so the way this happened, Saturday, it was Saturday night. It's Saturday night. I'm uh, in my bed, just kind of getting ready to go to sleep. My wife comes up. She's like, hey, I just wound up watching Miss America. And she's like, an Indian woman was uh, crowned. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and then she said, yeah, and then a Chinese-American girl was runner-up. I was like, oh, boy. Because I knew, man, within an hour, the Twitter world blew up. Here's some of what uh, people had to say. Church, um, just you could leave that one up. This is this is uh, this is our country. This has been an uh, uncomfortable sermon series, um, not just for you, but for me as I prepare. I am leaving every Sunday absolutely and totally uh, drained. Um, there is a long and painful history of racism and injustice in this country. And the question that we've been asking out loud is, what's the role of the church? What's the role of the church? Why are we here? What is this about? And, and see... Uh, John Stott said something, and I put the quote up there. It's a, it's a powerful reminder. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. And what he's saying there is that the church is the thing, it's the entity, it's the organism that God creates to do two things. Listen, it's to, one, reflect to the larger broken, messed up humanity in the world that we live in, that God is actually out to, 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 to heal, to restore. God is out to, to, to bring reconciliation to all the broken aspects of the world. And the church is the one place, God says, where the watching world can go, hey, how do we know God's going to do that? How do we know that God God's going to restore and heal the entire messed up created world. The church is the one place where the people can go, hey, there is a place where actually you see glimpses of God healing, glimpses of God restoring, glimpses of God putting back together that which is utterly messed up. 
Because the church is that one place where alienated people out there, where segregated people out there, because of who Christ is and what he has done in the church, is the one place where you actually see human community functioning as God intended. The church is the one place where you could see a preview, a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come. The church is the one place where we see this invisible rule and reign of God made visible because of the way people that are alien out there, segregated out there, are actually living together. That's why we, ex- and, and here's a James, where are you? And I'm going to talk more about this next week. James, can, can you come on up? To see, see. Paul says that the cross of Jesus Christ is the display of the work of God. Not just vertically. The cross is the place where the fullness of the gospel is displayed. Because the cross is the place where Jesus, Jesus not only reconciled us to God, but he also reconciled us to each other. Now here's the thing. If the cross and the power of the cross is in this truth that God reconciles us to God and also God reconciles to each other, if the world is unable to see our reconciliation, not just with God, but to each other, here is what they would see. They don't see the cross. Are you tracking with me? They don't see a cross. Is this what they see when they see the church? It is what they see if the only thing we have to tell and to demonstrate is that Jesus Christ came to reconcile you to God. This is what they see. And if this is what they see, they don't see the gospel. If this is what they see, there's no power in that gospel. Before we can tell the world that Christianity is true, we have to demonstrate to the world that it might be true. Before we can ask the world to believe the gospel, um, the gospel that doesn't just go, well, God will reconcile you to him, but that God will reconcile you to each other. Before we can tell the world to believe this, we have to believe it. We have to believe it. I've said along, what is the gospel according to us? Is this it? He came to forgive you of your sins so you can go to heaven. What is the gospel according to us? And what will it take to put this back in its rightful place? Jesus, you are a city on a hill. You are a city. You are an alternate city, an alternate Chicago. Here's our city. Remember the map? We looked at all the maps of so all the blue dots are white people. All the green dots are black folks. And red dots, otherwise known as Chinatown, is uh, over there in the middle, small place over there. And then Hispanic folks are yellow. That's our map. Now, this looks, this looks beautiful. I, I look out, I'm like, wow, this is a diverse. Who cares how it looks? I mean, really. Because this is our church. Thanks, place. I'm going to show this last week, right? And this isn't just physically. I think this represents really our church in terms of relationally. What do I mean? There are some beautiful, beautiful communities of people who are reconciled and developing deep, authentic relationships. 
And then there are vast numbers of us who come together with our own groups and who leave together. We come together, we sit amongst people of different ethnic groups, and then we leave. It's like we self-segregate. And we fool ourselves into believing that because we're physically here, that we're somehow this reconciled community. What the heck is that? Are we fooling ourselves just because we're here, physically present? You guys. Hey, let me show you one other statistic, right? This is our country. 2,000, 20% of U.S. churches were quantified as multi-ethnic. And multi-ethnic churches are churches where 80% is one dominant group, 80% one group, and then 20% other. It's not even that big of diversity. But we've gone backwards. Our churches are becoming more mono-ethnic, monocultural, not more diverse. Even as our culture and our society becomes more diverse. Confession time. Um, I'm really insecure these days, really insecure. Because, and I was talking to a good friend of mine in our church who was saying, Pastor Peter, it, it saddens me when I see people who come to New Community for a bit and then they leave because they don't want this, they don't like this, they don't want to embrace it or makes them uncomfortable. And he said, it makes me sad because I so want them desperately to seek God and the richness and beauty of God, but because of their discomfort or because it doesn't meet their needs, they're going to leave. And I shared with him, I said, you know, I said, that, 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 that struggle in my heart has been there for all 11 years of our church history. And I think I shared with you guys, I'm coming to realize that the reason why I haven't talked about this more often in the last three, four years, because it's one of the things that I'm, I, I, I committed to talking about, because it's the center of the gospel when we planted our church. I think I shied away from it because of my own insecurity. My own insecurity of, I don't want people to leave the church. I don't want people. That has kept me from sharing with you what is at the core of the gospel. That's why I wanted to apologize. Because that's not what God's called me to do. I need to obey him. And obeying him means that we talk about this very difficult topic. What I want to do uh, today, a couple more weeks left, is, is today is kind of bring to the forefront. Now, we're going we're gonna to begin to get more practical and more hands-on tangible to what is it we're talking about? Why are we a multi-ethnic church? Well, here, here are the three anchors that we've been talking about. One, the church has a multi-ethnic, multicultural DNA. The church, what do I mean? God makes it clear, we've seen through scripture from the very beginning, from its inception, that the church will be this diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural body. And you need to know, this thing is not just an afterthought with God. Matter of fact, there's a passage I want to show you in Revelation where it says, God not only saw it from the very beginning, but it's so important to him that he gave his son for it. Listen to this. Revelation 5, 9, 10. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. That basically means that Jesus is, has the authority to let history unfold the way he wills and he sees. Because, check this out, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth at the core did you know even this passage existed that at the core at the core of the cross of jesus christ at the core of the death and resurrection of christ is the desire to purchase for god from 
every tribe, every language, every tongue, and every nation. Jesus dies so that, not an afterthought, so that some from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to see the glorious beauty of the gospel. Diversity is not just at the core of creation, as we saw last week, but it's at the core of redemption. That's why in Acts 2, God chooses to reveal the story of the risen Christ in words that each person representing different nations can understand. God of many tongues, God of many nations, God of many cultures, God of many peoples. Now, it's at this point, I've done this at like church planning conferences. Some dude will raise his hand and he'll ask this question. But Peter, but isn't it really about the church global, the church universal being multi-ethnic? And some of us come from monoethnic church. Somebody will say that, to which this is how I answer. I go, absolutely. We need to have a much larger kingdom perspective that multi-ethnicity, multiracial, multicultural is about the global aspect of the church. And then I go this. I go, have you read Paul's letters? They're like, yeah. Who, who, who was Paul writing to? In other words, the way Paul writes his letters, he assumes that local multi-ethnic congregations are legitimate and necessary expressions of the church universal. Did you hear what I said? Paul just assumes in his letters, and I'll show you in a bit, that that, 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 that local multi-ethnic congregations are legitimate and necessary expressions of the larger global church. That's why he writes to cities and churches of great ethnic diversity. And he constantly talks about unity within diversity. Unity within diversity. If you understand this, you read Paul's letters totally differently when you have this context. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We always talk about it within spiritual gifts. That's not what he's talking about, diversity within unity. He goes on, he says, for we were all baptized by one spirit, so to one one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. He assumes, I'm writing to a local multi-ethnic church, and you need to be united. And tremendous diversity. Second, Galatians 3.26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul was constantly talking about how class distinctions, ethnic distinctions, and, and, and social distinctions are, 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 are bridged by the gospel, the reconciling power of Jesus. He's constantly talking about unity within diversity, and that testifies to the gospel. Why? He's writing to local multi-ethnic churches. You can't read the epistles through the lens of white, Korean, black, whatever. You need to read the epistle through the lens of, he is writing to a church like New Community. What are the implications for us? Secondly, the church is a multi-ethnic, multicultural destiny. Revelation 7, 9, 10. After this I looked, there before me was a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they cried in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is reuniting humanity through the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is a preview, not just heaven, but for all of eternity. And what we see in heaven is our ethnic, racial distinctions remain. Is that good news to anybody? 
See, a common mistake that people make, I'm telling you, and I've heard this in church, and people busting out pastors like, well, Galatians 3 says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Can I just tell you something right now? That passage has nothing to do with God obliterating distinctions. Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew, no Gentile, slave, no free. Has nothing to do with God obliterating ethnic distinctions. Paul's entire argument in the entire book of Galatians and in that passage is that we are accepted on the merits of Christ. Not on the merits of our ethnicity, race, class, or whatever else. That's his argument. It's Christ and faith in Christ alone through grace. People busting out colorblind ideology. Oh, God loves all of us. That doesn't really matter. Then you can't make sense of Revelation 7, 9, and 10. He says forever and forever and forever. We're not only (laughs) hearing the good news, but we are declaring the praise of God in our own language. Amen and amen. I said this a couple weeks ago. We'll talk a little bit more next week. I think this whole mindset of colorblind ideology in the church, and we all know, you know, we all, well, we just love each other. It could be disastrous and harmful when you ignore what Scripture has to say. God intentionally pursues all donations with the beauty of the gospel grace. Okay, having said that, give me like two minutes to go off on a little tangent. Is that okay? All right. And I need to calm myself down because this got me fired up this week. I want to talk about why we gather together. See, for a vast majority of us, Sunday is, oh, man, if I feel like going, I'm going to go maybe hear a good sermon, some good worship. I get my stuff, you know, sermon on, worship on, and I go home and do my thing. Do you know why we gather together? Do you know what this is? Do you know why it's important that you do get yourself, myself, out of bed? And we actually, do you know why this is critical? It has nothing to do with the checklist. God thinks I'm good now because I went to church. This right here is to remind you and me we belong to something bigger than just us. We are part of something bigger than just us. Monday through Friday, you and I are bombarded with this message. Christianity is a personal, private thing that I kind of do in my own room with God, and I don't need some church to do it. And the Bible says that aspect of Christianity doesn't exist in the Bible. You cannot do Christian life apart from a affiliation and belonging to a body of Christ. You and I need to be daily reminded because we are brainwashed into thinking, I don't need this. I don't need this. This is optional. The Bible says that Christianity is not Christianity. Do you hear what I said? I mean, secondly, can I tell about multi-ethnic worship? Do you know why worship is important and why we do what we do? There are things we testify together that we can't do alone. What do I mean? Where else can you see in this country, particularly this country, with this issue, where else can you see a group of people that look like you and me coming together, putting aside our differences, and for the sake of Jesus saying we're together because of him? Where else do you see that? And what else more powerfully testifies to that than we are worshiping at the foot of the cross? We are exalting and worshiping our God together. How powerful is the testimony when you all come together and because of Jesus and who he has done, we representing all our differences, come together, united as one because of the cross of Christ and focused on him, worshiping him. Where else does that happen? And where else can we do that by ourselves? We can't. Can I take it a little bit more further? Do you know why we have multi-ethnic, multilingual worship? Do you know why we sing different song styles and we have different languages? First of all, because worship in heaven is not just going to be in English. 
I'm sorry, y'all, that are like monolingual. You only speak English. You're like, that sucks to be me. No, no, no. We will sing in English, but we will also sing in what? Multiple languages. And you know what's awesome? I think I'm finally going to be able to understand Spanish perfectly in heaven. <laughs> I can't wait. I just came back from Colombia and I promised him for like six years, I'm going to learn Spanish, okay? And I go every year, you know, every year I'm like, I can't speak Spanish. And I'm sitting there going, I wish I understood. And then I realized in heaven, holy cow, not only am I going to be able to sing in my own native tongue, I'm going to be able to understand all the languages being spoken. So when we sing a song in a different language and you're like, oh, it's uncomfortable, two things. Number one, you're being stretched, and that's a good thing. And secondly, what's making you uncomfortable is blessing that brother, blessing that sister who says, my soul sings. My soul sings. And all of our ethnicities have an image of God, which means in only our ethnicity, we only see one side of God. But it's when we all come together in different genres, ethnicity, language, culture, that we see the whole picture of God. Can I get an amen? amen? So you know what? We will continue to stretch you. We will continue to sing songs in Chinese. And if you don't understand Chinese, you're sitting there going, this is making me uncomfortable. I just want you to close your eyes and go, one day I will understand. One day. And also look around and go, it's blessing him, it's blessing him, it's blessing him, it's blessing him, it's blessing him. Third. Church has a multicultural and multi-ethnic directive. Listen very carefully, please. Will you listen just very carefully right now? Diversity is not the end goal. Being a multi-ethnic, multicultural church is not the end goal. Pursuing racial reconciliation is not even the end goal. Jesus is the end goal. The fact that God is glorified is the end goal. The fact that all men and women and children are drawn to Jesus is the end goal. The end goal is worship. Heaven, they're not sitting around going, whoa, isn't diversity wonderful? In heaven, their eyes are solely focused on Jesus saying, salvation, all glory, all honor to him. Do you know why that's important? If you take Jesus out, we're going to tear each other apart. We are going to tear each other apart. If you take Jesus out of the picture, it becomes being politically correct. It will tear each other apart. It becomes, I want my thing, my say, it will tear each other apart. You take Jesus out of the picture, this is a hopeless endeavor. Let's pack it up and go home. But if Jesus is our focus on center, something powerful could happen. So I'm going to tell you it again. It's about mission. It's about Jesus. What do I mean? Two things real quick and then we move on. Jesus said, both come and see and go and tell. Come and see and go and tell. Mission, us as a multicultural church, is both come and see, go and tell. What do I mean, come and see? This is what Jesus said in John 17, right? I pray, he's praying for you, he's praying for me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete, wow, you ever pray this prayer? Complete unity. Then the world will know. Everybody say, then the world will know. Say it again, ready? Then the world, one more time. Then the world will know. What, what then? Then when you are united as one. Then the world will know. Jesus is placing our unity within diversity as the testimony 
of the Father's love for him and his love for us. Then they will know that you sent me. 2,000 years ago, something amazing happened that just blew, blew the people away. Gentiles and Jews, slaves, free, men, women, were actually doing life together in the name of Jesus. People saw these people who hated each other, were tearing each other apart, killing each other in vast society, arm in arm, walking to the marketplace together. Look at them go. Raising children together. Look at them go. Marrying each other. Burying each other. Do you know that in the first 200 years in the Roman Empire, Christians only called one another by their first names? You know why? Because the last names often dictated your social standing. So he said, hey, Carlton. Hey, Peter. Hey, Annette. Hey, Peter. Why? Christians said, because of who Jesus is. These distinctions that separate the rest of our society, he's brought us together. And what would that look like? for us to be in that kind of community. What would it, I tell you what would happen. The watching world would go, wait a minute, the cross, yeah, the cross has not just a vertical, but it is a horizontal. Hmm. But Jesus not only said, come and see, he said, go and tell. Do you realize... <laughs> Oh, I wish I knew what God's will was, you know, so I can. I, let me tell you one God's will that I know for a fact applies to all of us. Matthew 28. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. We need to go to the nations always. But please remember that nations are coming to us. Please remember that nations or people groups are people that you work with, people that you exercise with, people you work out with, people that you eat with, people that you, nations are at your door. And I said this last week, how do you and I even be, go, begin to go about making disciples of all nations when you don't even have relationships with all nations? How do you and I even begin to go about making disciples when we have no significant relationships of people from other people groups? How does that even work? You can't. The more fundamental, the most fundamental commission of Jesus, make disciples of all nations. You and I can't even begin to do if we look around and go, my friends look, act, talk just like me. You know what's really hard? What's really hard actually is making disciples of people that look just like you. That's really hard in this city because you have to try really hard to stay in your own homogenous little group you know what I'm talking about like you literally have to try really hard because everywhere you go in this city you are surrounded by the nations and so you have to try really really hard to go I'm going to try really really hard to make sure that I have no interactions with anybody else because if you just simply begin to live go tell community the nations right there all right, guys, and last week we talked about probably the, one of the greatest barriers to fulfilling this multi-ethnic, multicultural directive, and we called it living in Babel. Now, I can't repeat last Sunday's sermon. I don't want to repeat last Sunday's sermon, okay? It was a very, very hard sermon to preach. It's Genesis chapter 11. So we're just going to do a brief recap, and then I have to move on. Well, we saw last week, if you're joining us for the first time, or as, as we see on TV, last, last time on Unfashionable, um, we saw that diversity in language and culture, and people, I wish I had some video to show you, but 
Well, so when the diversity of language, culture, and people groups are not the result of some divine curse from God or judgment, and that's what a lot of people think Genesis 11, Tower of Babel is about, but it was God's intention from the very beginning. A multi-ethnic, multilingual world was God's intention. And the whole point of Genesis 11 was what? People going, God intended for us to fill the earth, to scatter, and to be a blessing to the other nations. But Genesis 11, the people have formed a mono-ethnic, monolingual, monocultural group, and they are resisting God's mandate for all of creation. They have literally built up walls and safe, homogenous environments, and they've basically said, we are going to stay here. And God, out of his grace and mercy, says, I need you to scatter. I need you to go. I need you to go. And we trace literally from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation how God at each point when people refuse to scatter and to be a blessing to all the nations invites persecution and sends them out. Sends them out. Sends them out. And we saw last week that one of the main reasons why we do that is what they why we refuse to scatter is fear. Is fear. Is fear. Their whole rationale for not wanting to scatter was fear. Psychologists tell us that the number one response of when we're afraid of something is we avoid it. We avoid places and people and things that cause anxiety. Diversity, unfamiliar environments cause anxiety, especially if you're not accustomed to them. So what do we do? We avoid it. We avoid things that make us uncomfortable. We avoid things that shake us out of our cozy patterns. We avoid things that make us not as smart or not as competent. And being in unfamiliar environments where we're the learner and not the teacher makes us uncomfortable. So we choose safe, homogenous environments because it makes us feel safe, comfortable, so on and so forth. I said this, I'm going to say it again. The thing that you're afraid of might be the very thing God will use to stretch your faith. The thing that you and I are afraid of might be the very thing that God will use to stretch our faith. And for a lot of us, it's the fear of the unfamiliar, fear of the unknown. And just as God calls Abraham to say, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the nations. I need you to scatter. That means leaving home, leaving the familiar for the unfamiliar, leaving the comfortable for the uncomfortable, and go to the nations. Here's a question I asked you guys last week. Are you living in Babel? Are you living in Babel? Are you living, living in safe, homogenous environments? And I said this last week. It's not just about geography. Look at your relationships. Look at your relationships. Who are you friends with? I mean, we ask these questions. Who do you come to church with? Who do you come to church with? Who do you leave church with? Who are you sitting with right now? Do the words diverse, different, difficult describe your friendships? Are you regularly praying with anyone not like you? Do you seek out mentors of different race, ethnicity, and gender? Do you acknowledge you live in a culture influenced by race and class? Do you speak up when other stereotype of other race and class? How many of us have relatives, family members <laughs> that we're going to see in November where it's just painful to be around them because you know what that dinner conversation is like? Anybody? What is our role? What is our role? This is a big challenge. Are we going to, again, this holiday, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just going to be here and quiet. Or when Uncle Bob, you know, comes to the dinner table, okay, it's time for me to go out. I need to get some fresh air. What's our role as reconcilers? Ask that question. And then, of course, the question that we've been really wrestling with is, can you identify ways in which you have been fundamentally changed as a result of your interactions with people of different ethnicities and culture? Can you identify? I was at a wedding yesterday. Let's get really personal. I was at a wedding yesterday. A couple in our church. Pradeep's Indian. Laura's white. Do you know what happens vast majority of the weddings I attend? The wedding parties? All look the same. I look at the groom's side. They've been in our church for a while. I'm like, hmm. 
He's Korean. He's got all Korean buddies up there. I look at the bright side. Do you know what? This is what we're talking about. My question is, who's going to stand at your wedding? I look just like you. Uh, when you dedicate your child, who do you invite? Who, who are your friends that you're inviting to the dedication of your child? That milestone birthday you celebrate? How many of us have church friends and then are real friends? Oh, you see what we're talking about here? Who do you call when you want to celebrate? Who do you gather when you want to celebrate big events? Who do you call when you mourn deep loss? Are you hearing me? We're talking about reconciliation. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. I'm serious. Do we have church friends? <laughs> we even have designations. Oh, I hung out with my newcom friends. Oh, that's cool. And then I hung out with my friends. Is this church that's going to marry each other, bury each other? dedicate each other's children. Is that what this family will be about? So where we're going today, right, is uh, this question. I, I need you to kind of respond back a little bit. What happens when we live in Babel? What happens? What happens to us when we live in Babel? What happens to us when we live in safe, homogenous environments, even attending a multi-ethnic church on Sundays? What happens to us? We don't grow. Bethany, you're talking about like spiritually or like physically? Okay, I don't know because I'm still hoping that I'm still growing, but I, you know, <laughs> I'm 43. Lord, multi-ethnic church, help me to grow. I'm, I'm about it. This is it. Like five, oh, six feet, this is about it. Okay, anyway, um, what else are we talking about? What else happens when we live in Babel? We become ignorant, Karen, yeah. That's a harsh word, but it's the truth, isn't it? We become ignorant. What is that? We become xenophobic. <laughs> I don't know why, but I like that word. It has like a ring to it. Xenophobic. Kind of sounds like a swear word, but not in a, like in a good way. Yes, Daniel. We limit our experiences. Yes. What else? Yes, sir. <sighs> Do you know what he said? He said, when we live in Babel, He's wearing a nice two-piece suit. Are you a visitor today? Yes, we welcome you. He's not, no, he's been, oh. But what he said, we live in Babel, we die in Babel, and we die spiritually. I mean, you guys are all kind of sensing it. What else happens? Just a couple more people. What happens when we live in Babel? Yes. We limit our witness. Yes, we limit our witness. Don't even get me started about mono-ethnic churches. I'm going to talk about that next week. I'm just, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until next week. Okay, anyway, one more person. Xenophobic? Mike Chen, what's xenophobia mean? Fear of foreigners. Fear of foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of American folks are xenophobic, as you could tell by the tweets. One more person. Yes. Life gets real predictable and real boring real quick. You guys are all there. Do you know what happens when we live in Babel? I'm going to go through these real quick. And then we'll come up with a gospel solution. One, check this out. We evaluate customs and perspectives on the basis of our own culturally learned assumptions, values, and worldview. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Naive realism. As I see things, it's just the way they are. But you have filters on. No, I don't. 
Yes, you do. No, I don't. The way I see reality, that's what reality is. But you have filters on. No, I don't. Naive realism. Richard Twist. Do you remember him? Native American pastor, theologian, godly man. He passed away earlier this year. He's been doing this reconciliation work amongst Native American Indians and other people groups. He said this quote in his book. I encourage you to read that. Because we are so prone to culturally be egocentric, the temptation is to consider our worldview the biblical and correct one, shunning all other as unbiblical and wrong. Worse yet is our habit of judging cultural ways, songs, dances, and rituals to be sinful when there is no clear violation of Scripture. That's powerful, isn't it? That's why in our minds we judge each other all the time right here. Why has he got to preach so long, man? I come from a church where we preach for 25 minutes and we got the heck out of here. Why is he asking us to raise our hands and sing all the time? Why are we sing? We're sitting there going, you know what we're doing? It's not just saying we're different. What we say is, but my way is what? Better. My way is more spiritual. My way is more godly. You see yourself doing that all day, every day? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Do you know why we do that? Do you know why the scripture says we do that? Genesis says that we were created to serve God. Listen carefully. We're created to serve God. Romans 1 says that we know we were created to serve God. But here's what we do. We suppress that knowledge. We suppress it and we want to be our own gods. We want to be our own masters. We want to be in charge of our own lives. So you know what that does? We know we ought to serve God, but we don't want to. So it causes us deep insecurity. It's like, I'm not okay. Something's off. Something's not right. Here's the thing. Instead of going to God to find identity, find our sense of goodness, what do we do? We look and grab other things to make that feeling go away. So we reach for success, fame, relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage, money, faster, quicker, slicker, whatever. We grab all that to make our, I'm not okay, go away. But it doesn't, does it? Another thing that we do, though, is not just these things. We look to what? Our culture, our race, our ethnicity to make that feeling go away. So I'm not a bum. Why? Because I'm this. I'm not a bum because I'm this. I'm not a bum. And when we latch onto a race, ethnicity, and culture, it turns into this deadly, toxic thing that we use to judge other people. And by the way, real quick, if you're sitting here and you're feeling pretty smug right now because you're like, I get this, man. I get this. I am so much better than those racists. You might be the problem. Are you hearing me? in our own self-righteousness of enlightenment? If you have no compassion for racists in our church, and we have racists in our church, thank you very much. And if your attitude is, well, if the race is a new community, then I'm going to go somewhere else. If that's your attitude, well, people ought to know better. If that's your attitude and you just want to dismiss and judge them, in your self-righteousness, you are being more self-righteous than they are. It goes both ways. second thing that we do we overly homogenize the out group <laughs> they're all the same <laughs> you know who you look like who <laughs> and when it's an asian person i'm actually listening i'm going oh he might know somebody but when it's somebody else because here's the thing we overly homogenize the group not just in being the same we all think what they all look uh, like why see we know the nuance and distinction of our own ethnic group why because we spend lots of time with them facial features but when we don't spend time with other people groups i'm serious studies have shown that we have a hard time distinguishing facial distinctions among them now i've had that have half built times in our church you know where we people will go i can't tell y'all asians apart because y'all look the same 
I'm like, I know, we have small eyes. <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. I just love to, well, I want to push them and go, do you know, know people within that ethnic group? Or is this first introduction to it? So here's what happens. It eventually leads to what? Perceiving one outgroup member as being the characteristic of the entire group. We call that stereotyping. So we leave from Jerry of group X does this to, well, the whole group does this. You can cue the video and get ready for that, okay? Now, this is sort of funny, right? One seems sort of harmless. For example, um, do you know all Asians drive Hondas? <laughs> do you know all Asians eat rice? Do you know all Asians are really good at math? So on and so forth. Some of the stereotypes we have in some ways are harmless. But when they venture into the realm of being harmful is when we leave from Jerry of Group X shoplifts to Group X what? Shoplifts. I pay attention to our culture, especially in this really heated racial environment. And here's what you hear. You hear things like all Irish people are fill in the blank. All Middle Easterners, fill in the blank. All Russians, fill in the blank. All Indians, fill in the blank. All gays are fill in the blank. And all white people, fill in the blank. Here's the third thing that happens. We recall only information that confirms our stereotypes of, of groups and we dismiss contradictory evidence as an exception. So when Jerry of Group X does something that's contradict our stereotype of Group X, we go, well, Jerry might have done that, but you know what? He's the exception. And here's the thing. The more insular we are, the more homogenous our interactions, the more cocooned we are when it comes to relationships with other people of other race and culture, we maintain these false belief systems because you're never challenged by contradictory evidence. You're never challenged by contradictory evidence. So we maintain, and Karen said it earlier, in our ignorance. And then fourth, okay, we fall prey to the ethical paradox of group loyalty. Michael Emerson, the author of Divided by Faith, has been extremely helpful getting to know him better, becoming sort of a mentor in this issue of race, ethnicity, and culture in this church. He has this term called ethical paradox of group loyalty. And, and, and this term essentially says, the paradox is that even if you are a loving, unselfish individual, the effect of a homogenous, segregated environment eventually causes your individual unselfishness to turn into group selfishness. There are 300,000 mono-ethnic, monocultural congregations in the United States. 300,000. A lot of these congregations are filled with very loving, unselfish people. But here's what happens. These very, un, uh, very loving, unselfish people are familiar with and aware of and are always prone to help out the needs of people within their own families and their churches first. You're being very unlo- loving, unselfish, so you immediately look, who's around me, who needs help, and you help. Here's the problem with that. What happens, though, when the congregations are segregated and we live amongst mono-ethnic, monocultural congregations? What happens? That means that even though you're very, unlo- very loving and unselfish in your own individual selves, when we continue to share with and help those of people just like us, we do nothing to bridge the inequality gap. 
Do you know that white Americans in this country own 20 times more wealth than black and Hispanic Americans? So here are people with the most helping out people that they see and they need. That means that people with less, with bigger needs because they have less to give, are trying their hardest to make what they think is a helpful contribution and the disparity between these never gets bridged. So Michael Emerson says, that's why you can't just rely on compassion. You can't just rely on, hey, talking to them about the needs because these people groups will never fully understand and feel the depth of the needs of other people groups. So even unselfish loving people in this country, never interacting with people of other ethnicity and race, fall into this thing called group, paradox of group loyalty. And fifth, someone said it earlier, we see less of God living in Babel. We see less of God. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that people made in the image of God includes their ethnicity, their culture, their makeup, and that we showcase, display who God is within all of our ethnicity, race, and culture, and we can't see God fully unless we have other folks showing who God is. We can't do this without the gospel and community. We can't do this without the gospel and community. We can't do this without the gospel and community. We can't do this without the gospel and community. We can't do this without the gospel. If the gospel hasn't snapped in your heart or my heart, this, this is an impossible journey. I'll tell you why. If you and I don't have a handle on the gospel, we're living our entire lives from this comparison apparatus of I'm this, so I'm better than you. I'm this, so I'm better than you. And please know yourself. Unless we feel more superior to somebody, we can't live with ourselves. And the more people we feel superior to, the better we feel about ourselves. That's how we're wired. We have to be so humbled out of this comparison apparatus to make ourselves feel better. Otherwise, this is an impossible journey. Do you know what the gospel says? Hebrews 2.11 Hebrews 2.11 says, Jesus says, I came and died for you so that I could call you my brethren. He calls us brothers. Jesus calls us brothers. We're an inferior race to the Godhead. Would you agree with that? Jesus says, do you know I wasn't ashamed to identify with you and I call you a brother? If that gospel snapped in your life, how could you possibly be ashamed of identifying with somebody? Is that even possible? If the gospel that says, I identify with you and I call you brother, the son of God, I call you brother. You're part of my family. I call you brother. I'm not ashamed to identify with you. If that gospel snapped in our lives, who could you possibly be ashamed of? It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they smell. You will not look at anybody and go, I'm not, a f- I'm not afraid to identify with you. I'm asking you, is there somebody, a group of people that you're saying I'm better than you and you're afraid, ashamed of, identifying with? The only reason why is because the gospel has not snapped in your heart. If there's somebody, anybody, you're looking at going, I'm ashamed to call you brother or sister in this church, it's because you don't understand the gospel. The gospel that says, I call you, 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 my brother. 
Me? After all that I've done? Yes, you. I call you, brother. Who are you ashamed of? And has that gospel snapped in your heart? Because if it has, there's no way you and I could look at somebody and feel superior to them. We need community, though. We need community. I so appreciate this letter. It's from Karen. I feel compelled to share about how God is working in my life through race relationships in the last four to six weeks. It has been front and center at work, Peter. On the topic of race ethnicity, I feel blessed because God has put me in an uncomfortable situations at work, such as being the only white person representing the Black Harvest Film Festival at the Taste of WVON, the longtime black radio station's annual festival back at the end of July. You know, as a white person, it made me feel awkward to try to get black people excited about a film festival in their honor, but I ended up having a great time. It's about being authentic. What was encouraging was that the chair of the Black Harvest Community Council told me that I've built long enough trust and relationships to be effective in my work with Chicago's black community. I was also invited by my black coworker, Antoinette, for Byron and I to attend her son's baptism at Traveler's Baptist Church on the south side. We were the only white people there. But we were made to feel very welcome from the moment we got out of our car in the parking lot to the time we got back in our car. I felt odd the entire time, but I know that God put this opportunity in my life for a reason. And I had to remind myself that the way that I felt wasn't about me, but is about honoring Christopher and his commitment to having a God-centered life and supporting his mom, Antoinette. Peter, all this comes from taking action, which is something I've learned in recovery. It's about taking action, the same thing as working hard for God's glory and leaving the results to God. What I've also learned is that these results were in God's time, which means things don't happen overnight. There was a time when I wanted so much to be accepted by black people, but like any relationship, it takes time to build. It's more than just saying it, but stopping to talk for a few minutes and making the effort to find out what's really going on in people's lives, an example of how God is in the details. Now I'm additionally blessed that my coworker Dion, who grew up on the South Side and goes to an AME church on Cottage Grove, and I can talk about race relations and black-white differences. We are both very aware that we're children of God, and we talk about His glory and His gifts on a regular basis, which I think has not only made us better collaborators at work, but also we become good friends and we pray for one another. I came to recovery and to God by hitting a spiritual bottom. And I have seen how this has happened in Christianity too. Do you by any chance think that because there are so many young people at Newcom who have yet to hit some spiritual rock bottom brought on by things like alcoholism and addictions, the loss of parents, divorce? I don't really like the fact that I'm writing this because I feel like I'm being judgmental and perhaps discriminating based on age, but I can't help but raise this question. Because at the same time, I've met people at church who attend because they love, your, love the church and what the church stands for. Because they hit a bottom, but through which God, they found healing at Newcomb. This is about you going, I don't know people of other race, ethnicity, culture in our church. This is about you going, 
I'm going to invite someone over for a meal regularly. This is about you going. And it's not just for us to me to share my story, but it's to listen to their story, listen to their perspectives. And when they invite you to an uncomfortable social event that's meaningful for them, that you and I go, you and I place ourselves in these situations where we are the only whatever, and we listen, and we really listen. Because it's only when we really listen and begin to get to know them that some of these notions and prejudice and attitudes and assumptions and living in Babel kinds of things begin to get dislodged. It's not just being here in a multi-ethnic setting, worshiping. It's when you are sitting down and hearing their story, hearing their story and their lives, and you put yourself in a situation of a learner, a student. Some people might even call that repentance. Where we go, maybe I need, it's not just a luxury, maybe I need these folks in my life. Are we there yet? Are you there? Am I there? Look at this church. It's not by accident that God has assembled us here together. James? Church? I would say that it's time to put the horizontal beam back to the cross. I would say that the world is hungry and desperate to see the power of the cross. Our, our city, our country is desperate to see the power of the cross. hope you are only hope and today when I say we need you it's the utter desperate cry of my heart we can't heal the racial and ethnic and class and gender divisions in this country without you we can't bring healing in this church without you God, I am utterly, we are utterly at your mercy and at your grace. Our church desperately needs you and your powerful work to heal us, to restore us, to unite us, and to bring us together. So, Father, we pray, even as we leave today, Remind us that the most important work has already been done. Remind us, God, that in Christ, the barrier and the division has been broken down. Remind us that our mission and our call is to reflect that to our broken, divided world. It's a heavy mission. It's a difficult mission. So we need you, Jesus. We desperately and utterly need you. 
Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hope to see some of you at the newcomer's coffee. Have a great week, church, and we'll see you back here next week as we wrap up this journey. Have a great week.